You Albion calling. You Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Programme. Shortly we will be bringing you Slumbertime stories, but first, here is some correspondence from a listener. Correspondence from a listener, Mabel? How can this be the case? We've not broadcast anything yet. Right? Really? Well, she's muttering something to me about time travel, but I'm not sure I follow. Oh, well, here it is. Dear Mrs. Rudyard and Cumblebatch. Who's that there, Mabel? Are you sure this is actually meant for us? What's that? Read on, it'll all make sense. Well, if you're sure. Dear Mrs. Rudyard and Cumblebatch, I'm very grateful for the gift of hand-knitted socks you sent for my daughter's May ball last week. Unfortunately, my daughter cares not for the colour, which made her feel distinctly nauseous. To cap it all, I regret to inform you that you appear to have sent two left socks and no right socks at all. Therefore, I am returning one of the aforementioned left-sided garments in the hope of receiving a corresponding item to at least give me something to turn into leg warmers for my elderly grandmother. She is blind, and as she remarked to me only last Michaelmas, I don't care what colour it is, throw it out before it bites someone. We all await your soonest reply. Yours faithfully, Miss Bathgate Trellis. Well, thank you for your kind words, Miss Trellis. Do write again soon. Uh, perhaps this time taking into account the content of this week's radio programme. Not sure that that did make any sense, Mabel, and I have no idea what to do with this single left sock, uh, but we probably need to move on. Now on the light programme, it's Slumber Time Stories, and this week we bring you the first part of Time Shock, a cautionary tale about meddling with the elemental forces of time, read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. Please note, this story contains flashing lights, steam, and scary references that may be troubling for infants. Part one of Time Shock by Darren Callow. Little could they have known as our protagonists were collected two by two in Sir Grenville Lushthorpe's belching steam coach. The sheer scale of the imminent disaster they were about to inflict upon an unsuspecting city. First to be embarked were Philby, the callow, besuited journalist, and Ellen Hall, the fearless explorer, ravishing in leather jacket and khaki joppers. Some wheeze, eh? she remarked, leaping aboard. Philby did not reply as he brushed his hair shyly from his eyes and climbed in after her. Notebook and pencil clamped in sweaty hands. The Sharabank lurched on. The city's streets were dimly lit by flickering gas lamps, made more eerie by an early evening mist settling in every gutter and back alley. Onwards, onwards to Bankside, where the river was at full swell, foaming angrily at the sides of the embankment. Here they halted again to collect the first Lord of the Admiralty, Cuthbert, and his good lady wife, Eliza, in high spirits following a belly-filling luncheon at the Conway Club. Well, 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 he muttered. Doffing his hat to Ellen, he squeezed his well-proportioned frame through the ornate door of the coach. He nodded, without really looking, at Philby, 
and promptly sat himself in the frontmost seat. A right escapade, and no mistake. Eliza was barely seated before the coach jerked on its way to collect the final witnesses of that fateful night. Eyebrows were raised amongst the motley crew as the final rendezvous turned out to be no less than the minster itself, as the PM, no less, and his special branch man, scandalously, the PM was not married, stood impatiently under the nominated lamppost. What nonsense do you think Lushthorpe has planned for us tonight, eh? muttered the PM to no one in particular, as each acknowledged the other, and the final leg of their night's adventure began. By this time, the mists were gathering into a white blanket of fog. But the coach had a good many modern lights, and the pilot knew his business. Thankfully for the backsides of all in the jalopy, the clanking, steaming drive to Sir Lushthorpe's East End Laboratory was made in good time, and Cuthbert snored only the once. Lushthorpe's city dwelling was a deceptively impressive establishment. The front itself looked like many of the smart townhouses alongside in its quiet cul-de-sac. However, once ushered over the threshold by a pair of butlers, one male, one female, in natty tails, the full extent of the property began to reveal itself. A large hallway with sweeping staircases to the upper floors was harder to navigate than should have been the case due to a large number of eccentric contraptions positioned all around. Chief amongst these were a gas-powered voiceograph and another device that looked to all the world like a four-horned gramophone mounted on a carousel mechanism rotating laconically in a giant fish tank, an occasional bubble of air drifting to the surface. Here the bubbles would pop and emit a strangled musical note, although it was hard to discern any obvious tune. There was no time for the guests to consider its possible use, before Lushthorpe himself entered grandly from a previously concealed side door. You are here! You are here! Wonderful! He greeted them, waving his thin arms wildly. It is no word of a lie, dare I say it, that what I will show you tonight will change your lives forever. Little did they know it, but never had more truthful words been spoken. Lushthorpe himself was an odd man, of lean build, but with a slight hunch to his gait. He was attired in whisket and breeches of his own singular design. His hair was scraggy, thinning and grey. But his eyes were alight with the wonders he was impatient to reveal. Around his neck were a pair of silvered goggles, and a brock watch and chain completed the eccentric look. You must forgive my lack of introductions. There are a great many elemental wheels in motion tonight, some of which are so unstable that we may only have a slim window to observe their wonders. More hand-waving accompanied this speech, his clockwork cufflinks glinting tantalizingly in the orange gaslight. Follow me with all haste to the scene of the crime. With this choice of words, the special branch man frowned for an instant. But the PM waved him aside and boldly led the gang after the scientist as he strode across the hall and through the baroque double doors at the far side. Lushthorpe moved with quite a lop through three more sets of equally elegant doors 
and down corridors that often turn through sharp bends. Lady Eliza was forced to gather her skirts in order to keep pace with them all. Finally, when the First Lord was all but ready to ask for a time out, they breached the final threshold and entered what appeared to be a medium-sized ballroom to see Lushthorpe's wife making the final adjustments to what seemed to be quite a modest pair of contraptions in the middle of the room. Golly, is that it? Ellen was heard to mutter under her breath. The first of the pair of puzzling devices took the form of a particularly well-appointed camera, with four bronze-ringed lenses of varying sizes mounted on and connected directly to a large copper ducting tube, which plunged vertically into the hardwood floor. A myriad of lesser pipework accompanied the larger on its journey downwards. Some appeared to be frosted with ice, whereas others could be glimpsed glowing red-hot beneath their insulating sleeves. It was in front of this peculiar apparatus that Lushthorpe now ushered all those in the room. Lushthorpe's wife, a robust and earnest-looking woman of Eastern Continental appearance, who went by the name of Griselda, stood behind a control panel formed of several dials, large switches, and electrical circuit breakers, and four-score vacuum tubes mounted in a shelved arrangement, all aglow in a kaleidoscope of light. Mrs. Lushthorpe did not look up and said nothing, as was her way. If you could please stand within the focal area of the time scope, I would be most obliged. He glanced at his wife, who gave barely a glimmer of raised eyebrow in response. Ah, yes, it seems I have a little time to explain your mysterious summoning tonight. The attendees raised a few eyebrows of their own as they cautiously stepped before the barrels of the device. Fear not, fear not, there is nothing to be afraid of, reassured the inventor. Do not concern yourself with keeping still either. It is vital for my demonstration tonight that you act normally and uh, 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 very much be yourselves, as it were. It's not a death ray then, lushy old boy. <laughs> heckled the First Lord jovially, which caused the special branch man to look nervous again. I think perhaps he intends to suck out our souls, interjected Ellen slyly. The First Lord slapped his thigh at this and guffawed with laughter so much that the PM was forced to give him a stern look. By the way, where is that lad of yours? Or is this all too dangerous for a miner to be in attendance? The timescope is perfectly safe, snapped Lushthorpe. Unstable, perhaps, but safe nonetheless. He glanced around him to ascertain, firstly, the machine was still functioning correctly, and secondly, that his boy had not sneaked unseen into the room. Tom's been in one of his moods today. I've not seen him since breakfast. A shame, the First Lord replied. The lad is quite the prankster. I'm sure he would have enlivened things. Trust me, no enlivening will be required. What you're about to witness is quite conceivably the most incredible experience since the dawn of time itself. Quite a boast, Lushthorpe, interjected the PM, placing his thumbs in his waistband. I'm all ears to hear what you have created. Lushthorpe did not seem to hear him, as he was really beginning to warm to his theme. Beneath this very building is a mile-long circular tunnel, 
which is connected by electromagnet-lined pipework to this very instrument you see before you. He tapped his hand vigorously on the camera contraption, which caused his Griselda to look at him wide-eyed. The PM considered inquiring if he had obtained the necessary planning permissions, but thought better of it in the end as Lushthorpe barely paused for breath. Through this tunnel, I have devised a method to accelerate particles to such speeds that I am able to move them backwards, and indeed forwards, through the fabric of time itself. This revelation was greeted by a sharp intake of breath, and a second later, all in the room, bar Griselda, jumped in unison as an unheralded, sharp burst of steam erupted through one of the pipes to startling effect. Now look here, Lushthorpe, opened the PM. Are you telling us that you have invented a time machine? He continued. Of sorts, of sorts. Uh, in point of fact, uh, the time scope is merely a passive conduit to the manifold dimensions of time that surround us all. In due course, I, I do intend to master travel in these spheres, but for now, this will have to suffice. But what the dickens is the blasted thing? The First Lord snapped with growing impatience. His mood was not enhanced by a second burst of steam through an entirely different outlet. They all jumped again. When he had regained his composure, Lushthorpe glanced again at his wife, and seemingly assured by some unseen signal, he turned back to those present. Well now, I do believe it's finally time for you to see for yourselves. Without further words, Griselda relinquished her place at the controls, and Lushthorpe indicated they should all move to stand behind the second of the two installations in the room. This gleaming device positioned four yards or so behind the camera apparatus, consisted of a matching large pipe, this time rising up from the floor in a similar fashion. The pipe fed into a square metal box with a similar contingent of accompanying ancillary pipes, wires, and even some softly ticking clockwork mechanisms. On each of the four horizontal panels of the box was mounted a polished brass viewfinder, that looked to all the world like the eyepieces of a saucy end-of-peer mutoscope. Are we about to see what the butler saw? smirked Ellen to Philby, who was so dazed he had yet to make a single note in his now slightly crumpled pad. Not only will you see what the butler saw, you will see what she will see also, smirked Lushthorpe cryptically. For this is the viewing box of my timescope. By looking through the apertures, Whilst I manipulate these controls, he gestured flamboyantly towards the control box, you will be able to witness with your own mortal eyes every event to have occurred in the arc of the assimilator for several hundred years in the past. Another collective intake of breath. Moreover, he spat through slightly foaming lips, I am able to show you this very night every event to occur in this same vicinity for several hundred years into the future. Good Lord, Lushy, burbled the First Lord animatedly. Are you saying you could see into the future with this devilish contraption? I am. And what is more, I will show you, here and now. An overexcited babble arose as Griselda approached, proffering goggles with slotted grills across them, and each attendee took a pair. Now this I have to see, ventured Ellen, already angling to take one of the eyepieces. Ladies first, of course, gestured the PM to Ellen and Eliza 
whilst simultaneously making it clear with his body language that no one should be mistaken that he was next in line for a berth. Goggles on, please, spoke up Griselda for the first time in her sharp Germanic accent, which, amusingly, had there been any additional observers in the room, caused all to look at her with surprise on their faces. Indeed, all should put on goggles now, including the attendants. With this, Lushthorpe gestured towards Philby and the policeman, who had already realised they were not in line for the initial viewing. Padded leather stools had been provided, and once suitably begoggled, Eliza, Ellen, the First Lord, and the PM made themselves comfortable around the four viewfinders. Philby, finally finding some gumption, had begun scribbling in his pad. The special branch man shuffled from foot to foot and continued to glance around in a nervous fashion. I say, Lushthorpe, it's awfully hard to see through these goggles, griped the PM fiddling with the eyepieces. Regrettably, you must wear the goggles to protect yourself from stray accelerated particles. You may also experience some blurring of the image, but remember, this is the cutting edge of today's technology, and you are my pioneers. Please make yourself comfortable on the apparatus whilst I explain what you're about to see. With much nervous anticipation, the two ladies and gentlemen leant forward and positioned their eyes against the brass eyepieces. At first, it was hard to make much out. But as Lush Thorpe and Griselda manipulated both the control levers and a second bank of complicated machinery at the far side of the ballroom, a blurred view of the wall they'd just been standing in front of slowly came into focus. More steam vented noisily into the room, and beneath their feet the floor vibrated slightly, and then more firmly, before this rattling motion faded away. The lights in the room also dimmed, as Lushthorpe announced dramatically, And, lo, behold, the present! Indeed, it seemed a fair declaration that they were indeed viewing the wall in real time. A sense of disappointment was palpable. I can view the present without this blasted contraption, muttered the First Lord, his impatience returning. You will recall, continued Lushthorpe, with undimmed enthusiasm, that on entering this room I asked you to stand in this very line of sight. I will now manipulate the machinery beneath our feet, to enable us to see ourselves in the past. He bent over the dials again, and this time manipulated a large brass wheel. The floor began to vibrate again, but this time it did not diminish as before. As this happened, the lights dimmed further, and slowly, blurred figures began to appear in the viewfinders. I, I see them, chirped Eliza excitedly. And sure enough, the blobs now came into focus, and the figures were revealed to be the six of them, standing nervously as they had been earlier directed. I see us too, added Ellen. We are really seeing the past. Lushy, you bloody devil, bellowed the First Lord, quite flabbergasted. There I am, all blooming twenty stone of me. The PM, however, said nothing as a cold shiver ran down his spine. He could barely believe what he was witnessing. But sure enough, the whole scene played out in eerie, jerky motion. He watched spellbound as his own ghostly figure 
tucked its thumbs into its waistband. Then a spontaneous burst of laughter from all four as they saw themselves jump in fright at the first burst of steam. But this is the mere beginning. Behold, as I reverse time still further. By now, all the viewers were so rapt that no more comprehensible words passed their lips as, with fiendish skill, Lushthorpe manipulated the controls of his device to show them further and further back in time. First, the decoration on the wall changed to an older style. Shadowy figures moved in and out of focus as steam emissions and vibrations caused the room and the mechanism to throb around them. The visible figures seemed so tantalizing, very real, yet achingly fleeting, as these avatars from the past had no knowledge that more advanced eyes from the future were observing them, and, frustratingly, they rarely made any effort to stay in the field of vision. There was yet another gasp from all four of them when the wall suddenly disappeared. Visible instead was a trampled earthen lane and a low, rustic, medieval dwelling. This in turn gave way to rolling fields, then to wooded land. All through this, the picture glowed and then dimmed as night followed day, winter followed summer, and streams of clouds and the years flicked past in their line of sight like some epic motion picture run backwards. It was a full half hour before the picture finally faded to black and they all jumped in their seats yet again as Griselda barked, Step away from the eyepieces! It seemed the magnificent contraption had run out of power for the time being and the participants reluctantly peeled themselves away and removed their goggles. Over the commotion and excitement of the spectacle, none of them had heard the twin butlers enter and set up chairs and a table resplendently laid out with chilled wine and a rather delicious-looking supper. The four initial witnesses retired gratefully to this feast, their mouths a-jabber with the scarcely believable experience they were struggling to comprehend. Lushthorpe, meanwhile, reset the machine and graciously ran the entire sequence again, this time with rather less hyperbole, to permit Philby and the special branch man to also serve witness to history in the making. At the First Lord's insistent bidding, the butlers too were dispatched to find the lad Tom to also attend the proceedings. But alas, no trace of him could be found. What further strange visions will our intrepid time explorers see? What horrors are there waiting within the mechanisms of the timescope? And what has befallen the lad Tom? Tune in to the Light Programme next week for another episode of Slumber Time Stories. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All stories, voices and characters created by and copyright to Darren Keller.
All music by Charlotte Savica. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production of Albion Radiophonic Corporation.